Welcome to the Western Bowel Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, The Benefit of Good Company on the Spiritual Path. The talk was given by Tom Lennon on August 7, 2021, via Zoom. Tom is a cultural resource consultant with a deep interest in environmental conflict resolution. He leads groups with the intention of supporting the spiritual process in others. In this talk, Tom speaks about good company as a touchstone to keep coming back to in our practice. He says that good company keeps clarifying the context, the mood, or the texture of the spiritual path, which is the essence of the path as distinct from the content or the form that it takes. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Tom Lennon. I'm an archaeologist by training. My professional work is all about sacred sites, traditional cultural properties, communities' interests in protecting histories and things like that. But at the same time, I really got involved in this as a professional and started my own company. I entered a group known as uh, 12 Step. And that began my initiation into spiritual work. And for those folks who don't know 12 Steps, it's all about working with a higher power. You don't have to name it, but it's about accepting what is. And as hard as that was, given the uh, addictions that I put myself through, it began to open me up to the work that has to occur, the individual responsibility, and the necessity for group work at the AA level, at the 12-step NA level. And so I say that as background because I'm almost 75 now, and I look back and I go, holy cow, I started this professional career at the same time my personal life cratered. And out of that came 12 steps and a foundational perspective about certain levels of practice. So in retrospect, what I hold with what I'm about to talk about with you is kind of a mood of mystery, a mood of gratitude about the fact that I'm still here and that I have been offered so much opportunity to take a good look at the way I am and move forward. What I've learned in the last number of years, maybe 10, maybe more importantly in the last five, is that I'm not very good intellectually at reading lots of material. I mean, I have a thousand books or so all over the place here, maybe a couple of thousand. And every now and then it's good to poke around. But the thing that drawn me closer to the work, to spiritual practice these days, are poems. And I have no background, everybody, in poetry. Nada. And not even in English literature. I went to a Catholic school for 13 years. And I was taught by nuns from the mid-50s. I graduated high school in 64. So we got a different kind of education, just let me say that. There wasn't a lot of work on literature, etc. However, 
now I really resonate with some poems. And I want to start off by reading one because it touches me and it conveys a mood that gets into me. And I just want to share that. And this is from a really well-known poet, Mary Oliver. She's quite popular recently. She passed on. And, and this poem is titled, Mysteries, Yes. Truly, we live with mysteries too marvelous to be understood. How grass can be nourishing in the mouths of lambs. How rivers and stones are forever in allegiance with gravity. While we ourselves dream of rising, how two hands touch and the bonds will never be broken. How people come from delight or the scars of damage to the comfort of a poem. Let me keep my distance always from those who think they have the answers. Let me keep company always with those who say, look, and laugh in astonishment and bow their heads. Just so you know, this is where I'm at. This is what moves me to to want to talk to you about good company because I first read this around 1996, 25 years ago, and I've kept coming back to this text. I'm not suggesting you do the same. I'm just suggesting that I find it interesting that there's a piece of text that keeps drawing me back to it, to work with it deeper, to ask myself, what is it in this that is unfinished business? As if I want to finish some business. Don't. But it draws me to it. So I keep asking myself, there's very few pieces that do this to me. Although I have to say Mary Oliver's poetry these days draws me to it. So what I'm saying is something in what I'm reading to me conveys a mood. I just have to sense the mood and ask myself, wow, what is that? What is that mood? And as I return to this text and some others, I am reminded of a brilliant piece of writing by Rick Lewis. He wrote a book many years ago about meditation. And in it, he captured a mood of what it's like for me to be taken by the presence of something that's mysterious and compelling and honestly not intellectual. I don't know if you know what I mean by not intellectual. It's more of an inner feeling a sensation, then it is like a thought, like, I got to know that. And so I want to read something else to you, having established that I'm moved by moods, because Rick's text opens up a means for us to discuss or to consider the possibility that there is a presence available right here, right now, in the present. And we have the means and the responsibility on the path to access that through experience, not through intellect. So let me read this and see where we go. When we read spiritual literature or are exposed to descriptions of some facet of spiritual practice, it is like coming upon a door 
a door we have never seen, a possible passageway to our transformation. The tendency of mind is to enter into a stream of random associations provoked by the appearance of the door, perhaps debating its usefulness, origin, or history. Spend time examining its properties or even praise and glorify it. In our preoccupation with the door's characteristics, we stand before it pretending that we have entered the space which the door defines without realizing that we have not entered anywhere new. We haven't left our mental prison yet. We are still exactly in the same space. We enter into this kind of activity with such a door because the mind cannot do anything in relationship to it. The door has no handle on the side which faces the mind. We cannot open it with any degree of intellectual facility or will. The secret to right relationship to such a door is to lean on it with the full commitment of our body and spirit. Because any door to transformation is a door which opens outward to the new, never inward to what we already are. We must approach the door and put ourselves off balance by surrendering our full weight to it with no holdout, no way of catching ourselves or protecting ourselves from a fall should the door ever open of its own accord. It is the divine itself that opens this door and the divine responds to the fully surrendered weight of one who presses her longing, her intention, her patience, and devotion against it. So when I read this, I always end by saying, wow, wow. I keep coming back, everybody, to this because I can't get enough of the mood of this. It's a key part of my message tonight is that good company is not an intellectual process. It's a mood and it's an energetic feel. It's a possibility that we have responsibility for if we understand the source from which we are being moved. Now, Rick calls that source the divine. Twelve steps call it a higher power. You may call that with a capital T or however you wish. But this statement at the end, the divine responds to the fully surrendered weight of one who presses her longing, her intention, her patience and devotion against it. Great consideration for good company. How do you surrender? What weight? What are you putting against what door? I like the idea of how much of our lives, if not how much of our culture, we're crying out loud, given how our attention has been totally stolen from an early age by the culture, how much time is spent talking about the darn door? Who's jumping through the door? What does it take to jump into the unknown? Well, I am suggesting here, forthrightly to everybody, that 
good company presents a context for creating possibility. And while you may have the intention to jump through the door, I suggest there's an even greater possibility that once we accept the way we are, we work with that, we will be yanked through the door. There is such a compelling need for such hearts to be together. In this, what I'm talking about is an energetic field. I'll get to that later. My point is this. Mood conveys something that's intangible to me. Although, if you're an artistic critic, my God, you'll fill pages with all sorts of words. I'm talking about feeling something, a sensation that's almost intuitive. It's inspired. It's coming from a place that is not me, but it's in me. Here's Lee Lozowick, my teacher, my guru. In 2009, he wrote about this distinction between content and context, which is where we're heading here with good company. This is what Lee brings to our attention. It is all about context. How to deal with a lifetime script that is life negative and defended. Shift context. Do. Repeat do. Understand. It is all about context. To overlay or superimpose some methodological behavior on a situation or system without an underlying change of context may produce certain recognizable alterations in content, but ultimately will fail to affect the desired end result because it is all about context. Of course, we can only start where we are. So I am not in any way suggesting that we never change content, but that we be clear, aware, and alert, that we understand that we are acting in good faith, establishing intention, initiating procession by changing content, and we hold steady to the need for an underlying essential shift in context. So I offer this perspective in support of a consideration, an individual consideration, to query ourselves, to ask ourselves, what is the context of our spiritual path? of our practice on the path. Not what the content is, but how does the content support the context? So good company for me is one way, one clarifying touchstone that I keep coming back to, to keep reminding me, because I forget all the time, of what the necessity is in my life, what my intention is, how to use my attention to be in this mood of the divine. One of the things that I was thinking about as I prepared this was, oh, you're talking about good company, but what about bad company? How do we deal with bad company? And Barbara Dubois, her most recent book, Brave, Courageous, and Undefended, she says that bad company in context, so to speak, are companions who are unsuited to your purpose and commitments. The purpose and commitments you have made to your spiritual path, 
your core principles. Then she goes on to discuss, you know, in just plain English, is there kindness, generosity, compassion, altruism? Are there relationships with motivations that are just focused on self-interest, angry, jealous? And so it just opens up this sense of, oh, there's characterizations of good and bad. And yet she emphasizes this, that because we have those characterizations doesn't mean we remove ourselves from a clear and loving relationship with those people who we may characterize as bad company. We just don't necessarily associate with them as much as we may have previously. So we sometimes are our own bad company. I say that as an addict and an alcoholic. Holy cow, I wasn't good company for those years. And I must say, folks, that my introduction to good company came from my introduction to being in 12-step groups. I didn't know anything about that previously. I didn't get it from my education, everybody. I didn't get it from the culture at large. I got it from meeting with broken down men and women who had a higher ideal in their life that they were living with and for. Any comments, points to be made or conjecture? I was thinking when you were talking about good company, one of the definitions was an energetic field. And I was thinking it's kind of impersonal. In some respects, we think of good company as being, oh, these are all these people I love and it's all cozy. And my experience of good company is that it's not necessarily that at all. You don't even have to like the people that you're having good company with. It's bigger than my personal opinions of any of the people that I might be having some kind of fellowship with. And you talked about a responsibility for cultivating good company or, or sustaining it. And I think that's part of it, is to recognize that my opinions about these other people don't really matter. Thank you for bringing that up. The work one does in good company doesn't avoid that. Those inherent interpersonal conflicts, we don't avoid that. We engage it in a loving way, in a pragmatic way in a way that encourages rigorous self-honesty about the way we are, not about the way you are. Wow, we'll get to that in a minute. But that, to me, is one of those doorways. One of the considerations is, how defended am I really? Have I really, really looked into that? And by the way, if I am, what the hell am I defending? Well, before we move into that, I'm going to read this piece of text that has captured my attention since 96. I've adapted it for this talk. I haven't taken away anything that's critical to its intent. And here it is. One of the many benefits of engaging a spiritual path is the benefit of keeping reliable, good company. Good company is that which we experience with those companions along the way who are by the very nature of their vision, commitment, practice, enduring love, and personal sacrifice, a beacon of light in a world in which the typical field of relationship is indeed a dark and gloomy place, fraught with denial, self-delusion, the motivations of the survival strategy, and the illusion of separation. Good company is founded on individual commitment to self-honesty, higher purpose, and the perennial ideals of the human possibility. A life of elegance, service, 
kindness, compassion, and generosity to others. Good company feeds us deeply. It is soul food that nourishes our deepest essence and longing. Good company on the path kindles the flame of longing for the divine. It embodies a true teaching, engages, channels the actual living force of that teaching and its representatives. Good company creates and sustains the field of divine influence that is necessary for any work on the path. That's the text. One of the things I learned from reading Barbara Dubois' most recent book, she works with a series of verses, Buddhist verses, and then she comments on them. And I found that very helpful because I didn't understand the verses very well, (laughs) but I sure got what she wrote because it's in plain English. And so I have broken this down into four verses. And I encourage folks to comment and think about, join in on what this may mean relative to where you are in your own spiritual path, your practice life, your context. Verse one, one of the many benefits of engaging the spiritual path is the benefit of keeping reliable, good company. The way my mind works is, okay, time out. First of all, I'm attracted to benefits. Okay, so whoever wrote this, this is a good hook. What's the benefits? I'm not so sure about engaging. I can characterize a spiritual path of my own making, my own intent, but I can't do it for you. Also, keeping reliable good company, for me, brings up, well, wait a minute. How do I find good company? How do I know it's reliable? And then how do I keep it? Okay, so this is the way my mind works. And the reason it's okay with me is that it gets me to study more. And study leads me to feeling more, not knowing more. The more I study, the the more I realize that I'm looking for a touchstone inside of me, not a knowing upstairs. So I bring up these questions and these considerations. How do I get started in this? And I'd like to answer my question, and hopefully you may have some of yours. When I entered 12 Steps, It took a while for me to begin to hear what was going on, but I was just glad to be there. Maybe a couple of weeks in, I sit next to some old guy who looked probably like me 41 years ago or 40 years ago. People are saying great stuff. And at the end of the meetings, I finally realized that they're always saying, stick with the winners. Finally, something resonated in this really screwed up brain of mine. So I turned to this older man next to me and I say, Hey, who are the winners? I mean, this gets me back to this Mary Oliver poem. Keep my distance away from those who think they have the answers. Well, I would also say, keep my distance away from those who are asking questions to get those types of answers. So there I am asking an alcoholic, and there must have been 50 or 60 of us, men and women in this room. And the guy looked at me with this shocked look. And he said, I can't tell you who the winners are. You got to go find them yourself. This is your work. Like, get off your ass, buddy. To me, it was like good enough to get to the door. God, I'm getting rolling here. To get to the door that Rick Lewis is talking about. The door was sitting in the meeting. So I was in AA. And here, this guy who's obviously worked the principles, the steps of the program, 
just in all honesty, with rigorous self-honesty, looks at me and just, you know, like blasts me with the best of intentions. That worked. Because then I realized that I couldn't see. I didn't have an objective view of what a winner was in 12 steps. You know why? Because I wasn't practicing the 12 steps. I walked in the door and thought I had arrived. I don't know what I thought, except I was a drunk and needed to straighten some things out. But I look back and I go, thank God for people like that. It's the same thing with the teacher, such as Lee. Fundamental was that somebody took care enough to tell the truth. Later on in life, when I first met Lee and then visited down in Arizona, in Phoenix, there was something that folks were attending. And I had just been introduced to, it was a path, let's just say. And I didn't know much about it, but I had this wonderment. But my wonderment was this, another great example of looking for answers. There were four men doing something down in Phoenix at the time. And I asked each and every one of them the same thing when I had a moment with them. I said, I got to ask you a question. What's the secret? What's going on here? And the first three people I talked to gave me stuff. They said stuff. I don't remember a damn thing about what they said. The fourth person, the reason I'm bringing this up is it had the same effect as this gentleman in Tolstoy. Fourth person says, I'm not telling you anything. That's what he said right to my face. It was just like, again? Oh, you know, like, what's with this? And over time, I got it little by little by little that there's a necessity for responsibility to get to work, not just ask questions as if there's a free ride somewhere. Later on, when I started studying, this is the third part of this thing. I came across a poem that was written by Lee Loswell. He says this, paraphrasing. He says, everybody's asking me to tell them what I got from Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. Yogi Ram Surat Kumar was Lee's master. Everybody's asking me to tell them what I got, what Lee received from his master. And Lee says, ultimately in this poem, I give up. Go find him yourself. You want to know what I got? Do your own work. Find out yourself. So these are three stories of mine about the universe telling me stuff about the way I'm approaching what was moving me. I couldn't find the right language. Every now and then I could find the right person. But I didn't realize there was a context to this. And I had to keep stumbling along. So this is my commentary, everybody, on the first verse. One of the many benefits of engaging spiritual life is the benefit of keeping reliable, good company. Reliable folks started talking to me from their reliability. Now, whether I got it or not was up to me. That was the beginning for me. Now, let me ask folks, do you have any comments or questions? Do you have experience with engaging or finding reliable, good company. I just want to let you know the space is open. For myself, the winners, a lot of it, I feel instinctual, whether the person is speaking from right knowledge, wisdom, and not so more or less personality. 
And because I work on myself, it helps my instincts determine whether the person is real or honest or a better degree of honesty. It's funny, you know, because you're talking about the steps and everything. And they say being sober, we have a, a better degree of honesty, not complete honesty. I've read in some courageous stuff that man can't be honest. We could be honest in certain things, but as a whole, we can't be honest. So when I see people talk to people, you can see if they're sincere and it's not just coming from ego. It's not self-serving. It's more, this is what I know and find out for yourself. Because if you don't find out for yourself and just take somebody else's word, I don't think that's too healthy, blind faith. You know, in my notes, I write, in AA, it's a higher power. We admitted we were powerless, our lives unmanageable, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. That's the baptism I received by working in 12 steps. These days, Lee Best says it to me, still practice 12 steps though. 1998, he wrote, there is this intensity of this yearning for that which the yearner already possesses in truth, for that which the yearner already is. This is quite a revelation to me. And Lee condenses it all into a very moving piece about what is moving me is in me. The search then goes inward instead of outward. And I know 12 Steps was leading me there. And with work on the spiritual path, it became more of a necessity to really get to work. So anybody else? What comes up for me around this topic of good company is some grief. The grief of having chosen to be with good company and also the reality of having to separate away from people that I have been in association with and the reality of, of that separation being substantial in some regards and just the grief that that presents. So I just wanted to mention that because that's what's occurring for me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's part of the process is beginning to be a stand for that which is moving us forward. And sometimes relationships fall by the wayside and our serious relationships are broken up. I've had that experience. So thank you. Verse two, good company is that which we experience with those companions along the way who are by the very nature of their vision, commitment, practice, enduring love, and personal sacrifice a beacon of light in a world in which the typical field of relationship is indeed a dark and gloomy place, fraught with denial, self-delusion, the motivations of the survival strategy, and the illusion of separation. The key to me, which opens this up for my looking into this more deeply, is it's that which we experience 
Good company is an experience. It's not like a social gathering. It's an experience about the nature of folks. The nature of what about those folks? Their vision, commitment, practice, enduring love, and personal sacrifice. All of these qualities call for consideration, for contemplation, for self-observation on how we act with these or how we don't or how we judge others. The key thing for me here is the practice of good company is the experience of being with folks who hold this intention to create and live a vision, a commitment, a practice, a love, have a sacrifice, which is working with and for others, by the way. Red Hawk, in Self-Observation, writes about an essential distinction that one must make between judgment and conscious observation, that is, objective observation. An observation, he calls it a discrimination, I'm calling it an observation, not colored by personal history, habitual thought, the binary mind. He says, such observation is a present phenomenon only, not arising from such thinking. Well, here we have a great crossroad in front of us about considering what is our experience of others based on our thinking. So we begin to observe our thinking, begin to observe our personal history, begin to observe our habitual thought, observe it, not judge it. And that's that's a work practice. This is where the phrase is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. You want to experience the nature of vision, someone's vision and commitment. Well, in order to perceive that and feel it, experience it, one must engage that very experience in oneself, which is to, with rigorous self-honesty, observe the way I am, my narrative, my habit life. So that's from Red Hawk's self-observation. I urge folks to take a look at this, if you wish, and you can look and study and consider each of these elements, vision, commitment, practice, enduring love, personal sacrifice. I copied this quote from Werner Erhardt about vision, just as an example of where one might go. The possibility of vision from Werner Erhardt. A vision of a world that works for all of us, with no one and nothing left out. A world in which the rules for living successfully are based on a principle of you and me, rather than you or me. It is a world where individuals experience their power and purpose, and where making a difference is not merely an idea, but a way of life. In this conversation, we discover another possibility, living in a way now, moment to moment, that makes a difference to life. This is the work of transformation, bringing forth a breakthrough in the possibility of being human. What we create together is a relationship in which our work can show up as making a difference in people's lives. Whoa, this to me is a very useful statement and a useful example of a vision. 
but it's a call to living a vision, not thinking about a vision. It's a totally different thing. It's about not going up to the doorway of vision and gathering a group to talk about how great the doorway is. It's about knowing how to create and engage a vision, actually how to be it. So my comment is, such a vision calls for us to be visionary, to live at the level of our vision. Does our path hold such vision? So I say in my notes, please look at each and every one of these commitment, practice. How about enduring love? That's a talk in itself. Personal sacrifice. My note to myself is, how can I feel each of these qualities, not just intellectually pursue them, but to pursue them in order to incorporate them, incorporate, bring them into my body. How? Guess what? There's a 12-step message here. I got this from this great book called The Spirituality of Imperfection, which is just a wonderful book about the way we are. Quote, you alone can do it but you cannot do it alone. Now, don't ask me what that means. Because as I just told you, what I've learned is find out yourself. What does it mean? You alone can do it, but you cannot do it alone. The idea of living in context and working with the content of your life so that context addresses content instead of the other way around, is very important. So let me move on to a great piece of this. My note says, hey, don't forget dark and gloomy. Oh, we're a beacon of light, good company is. In a world in which the typical field of relationship is indeed a dark and gloomy place. My question is, what parts of my life, your life, our perspective, attitudes, are dark and gloomy. What is underneath that narrative? Our story about things are dark and gloomy. Oh, it's just worth an investigation. The text mentions denial. The example I have written down for denial, and I'm sure everybody has examples. How do we deny love? We are denying love, is my position. How do we not extend love? How do we not live? love as opposed to expecting it? How do we live by measuring its absence? That is dark and gloomy. Here's one, and I thank Red Hawk for this one. This is a wonderful one. Next one is self-delusion. In Red Hawk's book on self-observation, he talks about five buffers. These are five key ways to begin to start to observe yourself, to really pick up on a sense of what I don't know about myself. First buffer is blame. I use blame to keep stuff from me. He calls this not me. Anything I can put on somebody else is not about me. The next one, he says, is justification. Justification is me, but dot, dot, dot. Justification is, you know, you're right, blah, blah, blah. However. Let me explain. So I have blame, justification. Next one is self-importance. Anybody know about that? Hmm? 
Sure. Self-importance is only me. So we've gone from not me to me but to only me. Then we have self-pity. I know you all know what that one is. Mm. Poor me. Oh, (laughs) you don't understand. I always say this when I'm in a bad way. I'm doing my best, which is nothing but self-pity. I'm trying my hardest. (laughs) And the last one he has is guilt. Now, you can imagine me coming from 13 years of education with nuns. I own this one. If there was an Olympics for guilt, I would win a gold medal every four years. Guilt is bad me. Oh, so here we have self-delusion. And I've just given five qualities of how we delude ourselves. And thanks to Red Hawk for just setting it up so beautifully. When I first read this, I went, oh, my God. Oops. He's like pulling the covers. This is pretty naked stuff here for me. So I just want to say, not me, me but, only me, poor me, and bad me. Okay, that's self-delusion. The survival strategy, we all know. It's our fear. And you can't tell me that you're not run by fear. Okay, but you can investigate how much of your life is run by that and how much you're protecting yourself through your buffers to keep your survival strategy alive, which is me first, really. Or it actually gets into the next one, which is separation. We learn about how we're constantly keeping ourselves separate from everybody. Red Hawk emphasizes this in self-observation as just the way the mind is. It's binary. It's yes or no, this or that, like, dislike. And separation is love or not love fear or love. And so all of these are really helpful pieces for taking a look at ourselves. And you know, the more we look at ourselves, the more we're good company for ourselves, the more we may begin to look at others with that same care, that same consideration that we're beginning to look at ourselves. Because it might be possible that the buffers we're living with and through Other people may be doing the same thing. So our buffer is reacting to their buffer, and their buffer is reacting to my buffer, and then nothing real is happening except we have habit lives bumping into habit lives. So how do we move past this? How do we get past dark and gloomy? Well, there might be light and happy or light and joyful, but I can't go there. I kind of like the dark and gloomy because it requires work and hard work in order to look at ourselves. There's a way of working with ourselves and others. I'd like to read a quote from Lee. It's about listening between the lines. Listening. We need to hear one another, not just listen to the gross words that are spoken. We need to understand what the other is saying reading not only between the lines, but deeply at the heart of any given matter. We need to hear and respond with sensitivity, tact, and diplomacy if necessary, with understanding, compassion, generosity, 
and certainly with patience and tolerance. Not to mention spaciousness and a willingness to respond and serve as called for, even at the price of some personal discomfort or extra effort on our part. We need to do unto others as we wish others do unto us, which includes honoring and respecting their gross needs as well as their work needs. This is part of that context. It's about how can we listen to others if we really aren't listening to ourselves? How we are, how we act, how we say things, our tone. So the dark and gloominess calls for practice, calls for work. And one of the possibilities is working with others who have the same intention, the same context, the same understanding that we're all involved in the same struggle, have the same personality dynamics in one form or another going on, and we're willing to work cleanly with care with one another to observe that. Okay, moving along. Verse three, good company is founded on individual commitment to self-honesty, higher purpose, and the perennial ideals of human possibility, a life of elegance, service, ah, kindness, compassion, and generosity to others. Good company feeds us deeply. It is soul food that nourishes our deepest essence and longings. So I just want to say, here you have more to investigate, to contemplate, commitment, elegance, service, kindness, generosity, compassion, longing, essence. I ask you, how do you experience? How do you know this in in terms of experience and not intellectual? I suggest that the way you do that is to practice and bump into all of this. It's not something that you're going to get out of a book. So I leave verse three because you get the idea of how I'm approaching this. You take a look at the language of this, for me, good company, and it opens so much possibility, so many doors, so many doors that in my sense of this work, so many doors that represent access to a field of energy, an energetic context from which all of this flows. So I just leave verse three. Verse four, good company on the path kindles the flame of longing for the divine. It embodies a true teaching, engages, channels the actual living force of that teaching and its representatives. Good company creates and sustains the field of divine influence that is necessary for any work on the path. Well, I like the whole idea of having a flame kindled or even another log thrown on that longing. And it's really useful to own the fact, to own the sensation of having longing, whatever that may feel like. That's worth your investigation. What this leads me to is an understanding or an introduction to this field of divine influence. And I must say, another small piece of text that I go back to all the time is this other piece about divine influence. This also is from Lee. Divine influence is like a field 
that is strongest at the center, but which extends indefinitely. Such a field acts on any particle that comes within range only to the extent that the particle carries a charge. A magnetic field does not affect a piece of plastic or glass, for example. If the particle is not charged, it will not be subject to the laws that govern the field. The field will seem not to exist at all. Divine influence operates under this same principle. It is always available, but is active in our lives only to the extent that we put ourselves under the laws that govern that particular field. To me, this is an essential principle that we are part of an energetic field and it's our responsibility to participate actively, as Lee mentions, and being a charged particle. I would suggest that means practicing on the path, not every now and then, but with the greatest of intention, the greatest of consideration for your well-being and for that of others. And the very constructive way of doing that, useful way, is with a group. Call it good company. And so this sense of being in a field of energy, being able to participate with folks, even if you don't feel that you're in a field, to hold this as context, to define for yourself what your vision is in your spiritual work, to get the experience of knowing, of it, asking yourself about the qualities of sensation in relationship with folks. What is it that intuitively tells us something, say from the level of conscience, about a relationship and how to proceed, how to trust ourselves before we necessarily think we have to go trust others? So I quickly went through verse three and four because I think I've established how I look at working with these things in terms of study and practice and acting on principles to actually have the experience of them. I'm going to close my formal presentation and ask for any further comments with this poem from a Sufi, Jami. It reads, Happy are we who in this foreign land of trials chance upon each other and relish a few moments, speaking of their longing for their home. That's us. Like it or not, we're in a foreign land, so to speak, when we're on a spiritual path. We chance upon each other, and we take the opportunity to relish a few moments together, to speak of our longing for our home what we long for, what is moving us, that mood. So I would love to hear from anybody. Hi. I was just thinking when you were reading about the clappers, my experience with that is that, well, we kind of need to pay attention to the opposite of what they are. Like it seems like the buffers are a repressed energy that we're denying in ourselves. I feel you're correct. And yet there's a, a process to be looked at here and how you do that. 
so that energy is released through practice. I acknowledge that there's energy there. And through self-observation, without judging ourselves, through having our attention on those thoughts that show up, they begin to lose their control over us. And so there's a process here, and it takes work to begin to be able to observe the way we really are. And one way is, for me, be able to identify when a buffer showed up. Wow, that was a start. And then to be with it without going, you know, the other side, I feel guilty about myself. And then I go tell myself the story about why I'm guilty and I judge myself. And so it's all part of a process of deconstructing the habit of that. And it takes work. To me, it breaks the chain of beating myself up, I guess, or continuing the same old story to think that there might be another way of looking at it. I had an experience of a habit I wanted to change, and I kept telling myself, oh, this is so hard. And it's like, why? Is it only so hard because I'm telling myself it's hard? It seems like we're all just making it up anyways, so... (laughs) acceptance really just seems to be the bottom line to it all of what good company is both for and from ourselves and others yeah it's a relationship with three different elements me the other and a power greater than myself that's what it's about and it's interesting to realize that taking a look at buffers is all about having a clear perspective, and for me, maybe for the first time, about the narrative I'm living. I keep recreating every day this story of me with how I'm protecting myself and my strategies for people, even if I know I have strategies. And so it's kind of a revelatory process. And it just takes paying attention, takes remembering. And that, as I implied earlier, We don't have any attention. It's been taken away from us from an early childhood by this culture. We have to regain it. And through such practice, through the context of good company, there's possibility there. Yeah. Yeah, I find myself struggling just assuming that the first element of those three is keeping good company with myself and figuring I'm not. And therefore, I stop there. In some situations, it's necessary to not seek the company of others and do the work. And at many other times, if I look more closely, I'm taking the easy way out. The question of good company to me is always that weight between the individual, me, my process, versus really reaching out and connecting with others. I understand what you're saying. And Good company is not a psychological process, by the way. This is not about self-help or anything like that. But it is about to get to know the machine, the daily workings of how we constructed who we are, and how much of that really is serving us, and how much of it is just habitual. I want to emphasize the focus on content versus context is critical. So good company can meet and reestablish context 
You can do it on interpersonal relationships. You can do it with yourself. You can do it in a group. That's perhaps a missing element to assume that you are that, but you're not acting it is what happens when you're just living through you know, your habit life. And there's a way of communicating, like I was reading from, from Leah, listening for where people are in their reactivity, in their hurt, in their suffering. And holding that there's a context for sustaining relationship with them. Not because they're hurt or not because they're not hurt or suffering. Because they're a human being who's making this really strong commitment to practice. 